Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of the memoir, What a Body Remembers by Karen Stefano. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It has been earning rave reviews. Samantha Dunn, author of Not By Accident, calls it, quote, riveting, necessary, and unforgettable. Susan Henderson, author of The Flicker of Old Dreams, calls it a gripping, upending thing of beauty. And Antonia Crane, author of the memoir Spent, calls it stunning. What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, available from Rare Bird Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. I know. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? Incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one hey. person at just one Hi. time. How's it going? Right. Welcome to right. the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. I have Jennifer Pasteloff on the program today. She is the author of a new memoir called On Being Human, a memoir of waking up, living real, and listening hard. It is available now from Dutton. Uh, I ran into Jennifer. I've known her for a while. I ran into her not too long ago at a party here in town. Uh, at a mutual friend's house. It was sort of random. She has this new book coming out. We got to talking. She came over. She has a lot going on. She's got a very interesting and uh, compelling story, and I know you guys are going to be excited to hear from her. That's coming up just moments from now. Uh, I do want to quickly give an update on transcripts for this pro- uh, program. As uh, many of you know, if you've listened to the last two episodes, I'm in the process of trying to get transcripts done for every episode, almost 600 episodes. So I'm not going to keep talking about this ad nauseum. I'm going to give myself until the middle of June and then I'm going to let it go. But I'm trying to make a push to get transcripts done so that uh, there can be a written record in addition to an audio record of this program. A lot of people have asked me for transcripts over the years. And uh, I got an email from a listener who suggested that I crowdsource so that listeners of the show could take on uh, transcribing one or more episodes. And if we all pitched in, we could get, you know, we could get it done. And I've heard from a good many of you. Thank you so much again to everybody who has volunteered to transcribe 
episodes. I really appreciate it. Um, what I have determined based on numbers is that it's going to take a combination of things to get the full archive transcribed. So I think it's going to be volunteers. Uh, I think I'm going to have to pay for some transcribing out of pocket, which I am willing to do. Uh, and then I have also decided to do a t-shirt fundraiser for the next two weeks so that if, you know, if you're out there and you don't have time to transcribe, but you want to pitch in, you just buy another people t-shirt and every single dime uh, that I raise in that fundraiser will go to transcriptions. And if for some reason uh, I don't need the money or it goes over, I will donate it to charity. So I'm not making money off of the uh, fundraiser. I'm just using it to pay a transcriber, if that makes sense, or a transcriptionist. You know what I mean. So the fundraiser ends on June 11th. If you want a link to where you can buy a, a vintage other people t-shirt, it has the vintage logo. It has my face wearing a gas mask and headphones. Do you remember this from back in the day? It's very chic. <laughs> Something you'll be proud to wear out in public. Uh, if you want a link to where to buy a t-shirt, just go to my Twitter feed at other PPL. And I, uh, I pinned a link to the uh, fundraiser site at the top of my Twitter feed. I will also try to get a link posted on the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you are out there and you would like to help transcribe, you can uh, email me at letters at otherppl.com and uh, just put transcription in the subject line so that I know what you are e uh, emailing me about. All right, I think that does it. This is, this is going to go on through June 11th. So you have until June 11th to get a, uh, to get a t-shirt. You really should. There are multiple colors, sizes. There's a unisex version. There's a, a women's V-neck. You got options. All right, let's get to the conversation. My guest again is Jennifer Pasteloff. Her new book is called On Being Human a memoir of waking up, living real, and listening hard. I had a good time talking with her. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Do you want to hear it? Okay, here she is. This is Jennifer Pasteloff. Well, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know anything about me, I am hard of hearing, profoundly hard of hearing. Without my hearing aids, I can't hear. And even with them, it's a struggle, so I read lips. And in my workshops that I lead... It involves body movements, so they often take place in a uh, yoga studio, but most of it is people t telling stories and sharing and talking and allowing themselves to be seen and heard. And as someone who can't hear very well, it's kind of interesting that that's how I make my living. So I have to kind of scoot around on my butt and get in close, and I joke that I will sit on their lap, but I get really close in their face so I can here and the magic of the experience is that people feel seen and heard and i i just love that i'm hard of hearing and i've made a career out of listening i find it to be exciting because it reminds me of what's possible like you have no idea what's possible in life this is how i make my living is by listening to people they just talk about who they are and what they're afraid of and what they want to let go of and things they've written and whatever it may be. But I, th I think the experience of being seen and heard is so powerful. Well, I want to get to how you got to where you're leading these mm -hmm. workshops. But first of all, um, the fact that you have, uh, you know, how, how, what percentage hearing loss do you have? <sighs> um, I think without my hearing aids, I probably hear like 
10 or 15%. I mean, like really, and I have tinnitus really bad. So I, I just hear ringing in my head all the time, like right now. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I had a panic attack the other night. It was so bad. Um, the hearing aids help drown that out because it makes everything else louder. But, um, it's progressively gotten worse, you know, as I've gotten older. So uh, what, what caused it? I don't know. You know, I, I, I had it all my life, I think, except I was in such extreme denial. The tinnitus I always had. And as I got older, the hearing loss has progressed and they don't know. And tinnitus is just a ringing in the It's ear. a ringing. It's a whooshing. It's, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people have had it after they go to a concert, a really loud concert. And mine's sometimes it's debilitating. Yeah. What do you do? Cry. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, that's why I focus so much on having a sense of humor, because I, I really believe if, if I didn't, I wouldn't get out of bed. Right. And I would, you know, just feel sorry for myself all the time. I mean, everyone has shit. Everyone has stuff in their life. Mine isn't so bad. But if you don't have a sense of humor, you're fucked. Well, and it, but you've also adapted. I mean, look at what you do. Like you say, you call yourself a professional listener. And... I think there is something too, and I get this a little bit from the experience of talking to people for this show. There's something like really nourishing uh, in being listened to in a really like concentrated way, but it's also really nourishing to listen in that way. Oh my like gosh. it's good, you know. And I think that uh, maybe having the the hearing loss sort of forces your hand in that department. I mean, you know, bingo. That's it. Bingo. And I just got the chills, so that means, you know, you're right. Um, it's m most of the time when we're listening, people are we're waiting for our turn to talk. And so when we're listening from just a pure place, you know, without trying to fix anyone or offer any advice, just really listening, it's such an amazing experience. Yeah, well, I mean, they say, like, I mean... I was reading something about like, uh, and this is going to sound precious, but it's like love. Like I was reading an essay or uh, something about like love. And it's one of these things that you, you say it, I love you, or, oh, I love that. And you know what it means in context, obviously. And you use it probably a few times at least every week, I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> but like, what does it really mean? You know, it was one of those things. And one of the primary uh, components of actually loving another person is to actually be there for them in an, like in a full way and um to not be i don't know like mansplaining <laughs> talking over them thinking of what you're going to say while they're talking mansplaining. <laughs> yeah. Dude, but like resisting yeah. the urge to fix resisting the urge to come in and sort of uh you know opinionate or uh, opine and um I don't think opinionate is a verb, but you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. And that's, you know, I work with all these, especially these women, and this happened by accident, but um, all these women who've lost children. And to give them that space to grieve and just listen and not offer any, you know, bullshit platitude or try to fix it, it's it's really healing. I mean, it doesn't make the pain go away, but maybe, you know, we could take the pain away for a breath or a moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's something of, of what's happening in talk therapy. I mean, obviously there's more to it than just listening, but I think for a lot of people just to have somebody who will sit there and receive 
exactly. their suffering and, and hopefully they have some skill and like know how to respond or to, to guide the person's thinking in a direction that's uh, healthier. But I, like, I think that's wonderful. I, there's also a part of me that sort of winces when I think about the fact that so many people to get that have to pay somebody to do it. I know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to find people. I actually people. don't have a therapist. So if you're listening, um, <laughs> I, I know. And that's, I'm wearing a bracelet right now. I'd give it to you, but it, I don't think it would even fit you. It says, I got you. And that's my, I'm, I'm getting a tattoo on Thursday, my first one. Oh, wow. Yeah. My best friend, one of my best friends is in the band Snow Patrol and he's like covered in tattoos and he's coming with me and it's going to say, I got you because that's who I want to be in the world for people. But I also want that reminder for myself, you know, this experience of being gotten and it's, it's being listened to. I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about. Full bodied being there for someone. Um, yeah, it sucks that we have to pay for that to have someone really listen to us. Um, and I think for me, the reason that people talk about my listening so much is, is like, is like a real literal level because when you watch me, you could see how actively I'm listening because I have to work so hard to hear. You know, in this space with you and I, Brad, it's easier because you're not too far away from me. We're in this contained little room. But when I'm in my workshops, it's this big setting and, you know, I have to get really close and I really have to work hard. And so people can actually witness that. I was going to say it's physical listening. It's physical. It's physical. And it makes me tired <laughs> yeah which is like which gets hard when i have to do the workshops a lot i mean the, the how much i have to work to hear especially in group settings it's it's beyond me how i make it through a day you're like running from one side of the circle yes. to the next yeah but because i'm now so open about it without shame like fuck it this is me i can't hear this is what i do to hear this is how i get by in the world and i have a sense of humor about it i don't care they'll wait a few minutes and and you know yeah, people i think most people would be fine with it. They are, but I will say it's a lot easier when I'm in control. So when it's my workshop or something, it's great. But when I'm a student, let's say, or in another setting, it's I just I suffer silently because it's yeah. not like I'm gonna like go sit in you know uh, someone's lap so I can read their lips and you know a reading. You know, like like you're not going to ask the person in the front row to give up their seat or something like that. No. Yeah. But um, actually, I, recently I went to see Roxanne Gay and Marlon James. So amazing. And there was, I asked the, the usher if I could sit in the front row. And I felt so nervous to do it. And it was a game changer. Except then there was something blocking Roxanne. So I couldn't see her mouth. So I was like, <laughs> So I literally did not hear a word she said. But I asked to sit in the front. And, you know, I don't really do stuff like that. You should. I know. It just was so... <laughs> wow. Okay. I could do that. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be a pretty big asshole to not accommodate somebody who's like, hey, I have trouble hearing. I, I need to read lips. Who's going to say no to that? I know, know it's hard to ask. Invisible. But... And, but, but because I present, I speak, I, speak, I think, like... Um, a typical hearing person, although I've had people say, oh, you're hard of hearing. That's why your voice is like that. You know, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> One time, this girl, I hadn't seen her in a long time, and she goes, why is your voice so nasal? And when I was a child, I got made for all the time for my voice. So who knows? But I present, I think, as someone who hears normal. So, for example, if I'm ordering a coffee or whatever, and, and I ask them to repeat what they just asked me, and they'll say, your name Oh, I'm sorry. I'm hard of hearing. And people make assumptions. I'm not, I'm just an asshole. I'm not paying attention. I'm an airhead. I'm entitled, you know. So there's something with invisible disabilities that sometimes feels 
Well, and the world in general is just not as accommodating as it could be. It's getting better, but like, I, my son is disabled. I see it all. I, I I notice it for the first time as a parent of a disabled child in ways that I didn't previously. So I'm sure, same with my nephew. Yeah. It's, It's mind blowing. All of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, you know, like this should be a lot easier for us than it is. The kid can't walk. Like we had to sue the public school district to get him a, a physical aid. So, yeah, my sister went through the same stuff. It's amazing. Like we, like he can't walk, and they were not going to give him a person to help him get around the classroom. And I was just like, I was like, wow, this is uh, yeah. this is upside down. No, it's definitely ableism is alive and well. I remember I saw an article recently on Twitter, and um, of someone you know was talking about not giving your kids iPads or what have you. And um, of course, I hung my head in shame because my son has an iPad a lot. Okay. But my nephew and, you know, autistic children, for example, it's just such a, it's a very ableist thing to say in a, in a blanket way. You know, like you shouldn't let your kids have X amount of screen time because, you know, the iPad is like how he survives. <laughs> right. Right. Well, no. And I think like, you know, it's very easy. I know there are probably some parents who pull it off and their kids only read books and they paint in the garden or whatever it is but like (laughs) i don't know i don't know hardly any parents who bat a thousand on this stuff it's like try having a two-year-old for a while exactly and then get back to me about how the ipad is the well that's why i started this instagram called no bullshit motherhood and i i really like i could give a shit what other people say i mean i'm really with other things but with motherhood i'm yeah give me a break it's just, you know? I've always been a little bit, maybe too resistant to like reading like books on how to be a dad or books on how to properly parent just because maybe I feel like it would just like be anxiety inducing, but I resist it partially because I think like, I'm like, I got this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human animal. We're biologically wired for this. Like teach Same. them some manners. Like, like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to make the act of parenthood, uh, feel competitive like like an achievement based i've got to tick all these boxes yeah. in order to be it's like jesus like i didn't read one book not one yeah me neither okay people good. didn't believe me i i swear to god i didn't even know how to change a diaper and that's the honest to god truth my son's turning 3 on sunday i didn't read a book nothing by the way diaper changing actually pretty fucking easy it's so easy <laughs> and i was so i mean i i don't even know how to change a diaper how am i going to be a mom i mean it's just you know um, there is, there is no manual, yeah. any, any expecting parents out there, there is no manual. <laughs> no. And you're not going to be perfect at it. But like, what, what did somebody say? Like a friend of mine's mom was like, she's like, I'm basically like 3% better at parenthood than my parents. And she's like, and they were probably 3% better than theirs. Like, it's that's like, such a random number. I know, but it's like, 3%. just that's we're, we're making incremental progress. Right. Like, you know, you're like, maybe you're, maybe you had specific, you know, particularly difficult parents or parents who um, were challenged by the role. And so you have made a 30% improvement. Great. <laughs> but most people, you know, you're just making, you know, small progress. I think that makes some sense. I do. I think it's amazing. It's all you need 33%. To do. It's like, you know, I have this don't be an asshole is my URL, but um, on my Instagram bio, it says one quarter of an asshole, but mostly not. <laughs> <laughs> because I do believe everyone is an asshole sometimes. So yes. If you can look me dead in the eye and say, I'm never an asshole, you're the biggest asshole. Well, okay. So I feel this way too. And uh, I think I'm one of these like, 
assholes. Just assholes. kidding. <laughs> No, but I, I think like by disposition and also by like philosophical slash spiritual belief, I'm inclined to want to be forgiving and accepting and uh, humble. Like these are values that like I embrace. I don't always live them, but like I think they're good values. Because you're human. Yeah. But I feel like especially in the social media sphere where people are um, caught in some kind of transgression they violate some standard of decency, and it's legitimate. I, I am uncomfortable sometimes with how totally people get torn down, and by how com, you know how um, how much mob mentality there oh, is. Oh God, you, please! Are you kidding? It scares the shit out of me. Because I'm just like, wait a minute, like, and and I guess the point that I'm coming back to in a circle is just that, like. Hey, listen. We're all assholes. We're all assholes. Mm -hmm. Like, let's take it. Let's take it down a notch. Like, I know this person fucked yeah. up, but like, like, w if we went through your life with a fine tooth comb, oh my god, you know, like if people did that to me, I would be in deep shit on Twitter. Same. <laughs> Are you kidding? God, all that stuff in high school. <laughs> right. <laughs> that time I stole. I mean, right. you know. But I mean, and even beyond that, though, like I think in our day-to-day -day lives, I mean, hopefully not too terribly bad, but we all transgress. And I think we need to be a little bit more patient with one another, especially in social media I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, and I do think the social media thing, everything is so immediate and viral. That that's where it comes from. Yeah, and it's also safe. Like you're at a distance. Oh, yeah. You're not in somebody's face. You can just tear somebody down, and j with a click or a retweet, and then they don't, you, they never have to interface. You never have to interface with them. You know? Never. So. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, but let's get back to your, your biography. So, um, from Philly, are you from Philly? Oh yes. Okay. See, so, I couldn't read your lips. Yeah. Yes. I was born in Philadelphia, South Philadelphia. Okay. And probably have had hearing loss from birth, you think? Yes. Yes. Um, it just progressed as I got older. Okay. So all my life, you know, teachers, et cetera, I would say you don't pay attention. So, I mean, that's a refrain I heard my whole entire life. And then finally, and then when I was in my early 20s, when I was studying acting, is when I really was like, oh, I can't hear. Oh, my God. 
How can you get to the point of being in your early 20s and you still didn't realize Because it, it progressed, because oh. it wasn't so bad. I mean, it was it was not excellent, you know, um, when I was a child, but it definitely progressed. And it's progressed since when I was pregnant. For, so, for some reason, my hearing loss got so bad and it never came back hmm. to what it was before. It never used to be so bad that if I had my hearing aids out, I couldn't hear. And now, you know, I sleep with my son. Um, we co-sleep when I, I don't wear my hearing aids to sleep. And it's just some so frustrating for both of us because he says things to me and i can't mommy doesn't have her hearing aids and i don't know what you're saying right right it just wasn't when i was a kid it wasn't so bad okay and so and then you also lost your father when you were young when i was eight oh, yeah that's a tough age it was traumatic it was you know i mean it was the i mean it's how this book came to be it was my whole identity i um was really really close with him too close <laughs> and um it was like my dad and i against the world and i um said to him i hate you and then he dropped dead basically so in my child brain i killed him and i was a bad person and um i decided i was treated like an adult and i decided that i shouldn't cry or show emotion or care so i just said i don't care and i just locked it in my body oh. for years so wait, it, you were having a fight with him? I was. So my father, may he rest in peace, Melvin, used to smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. And this was in the eighties, Brad. When you he would send me across the street. There's a little store called the Newsroom. The irony that I worked at a restaurant called the Newsroom for almost fourteen years is not lost on me. I find that to be foreshadowing at its finest. Yeah. But my father used to send me across the street to go get me a hard pack, put it on my tab. Like, can you imagine that now? You'd go I to jail. Mean, You'd mean. go to jail. You'd literally go to prison. <laughs> so I'd go, and I said, I, I flushed his cigarettes down the toilet, and he got so angry. But he had promised he would quit smoking. And I said, you always break your promises. I hate you. That was the last thing I ever said to him. It, did he, but he, did he drop dead in front of you right then? or was it he, just, wait, wait, let me read your lips. Did he, he drop dead right then? No, he, um, and then I ran out, and then... I, w I went in my room and I heard all this noise. I don't know. He had a heart attack. And I mean, how he really died. And my mom told me this maybe like five years ago. And I wish I could unhear it. I always thought it was a heart attack, but it was actually hardening of the arteries. But she said, actually, he vomited and he asphyxiated. And I was just like, okay, I wish I never knew that. But, you know, during the heart attack. So he was dead by the time he got to the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. How old was he? 38. So for me, 38 was always the age of death, hands down. Never thought I'd be past 38. And it wasn't in a macabre way that I could, you know, I thought my, I was, I envisioned my death or anything. I just was like, my brain could never go there. Yeah. Never, never could envision future, never could make plans, which carries over to today. I'm really bad at plan making and scheduling and like even talking about, you know, what I'm going to do next month gives me anxiety. Yeah. Well, no, like, I have a friend who lost his dad when his dad was 37. And I think he said something to the same effect, really? especially, especially as he approached that age. Oh yeah. It was, I think psychologically he was just like, well, 37 is when you die. Yeah. You know? And, 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 it, and it's so subconscious. It's n it's not like a, you know, you walk around, it's just like a knowing. Yeah. Well, so, um, 
you know, when I started writing a million years ago, when I was, I mean, I started writing as a child, but seriously, at NYU, poetry, and everything was about my father, my father, my father, my father. And I always thought, you know what, if I've had this worst thing that's ever happened to me, I'm going to turn it into art somehow, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I never did. I ended up waitressing and just nothing ever happened until I finally came back to it. And really, it is because of my dad. You know, that's the, not all that your book is, but he's no, the, he's the it's heart a lot of it. of it. I think it's the through line. Um, no, it's not 330 pages of, you know, my dad died, <laughs> but it's a lot of it. It's a lot of it. And, you know, losing a parent that young is so and it's such a traumatic way and and then never dealing with grief. Yeah. You know, I think about this. The ways in which, and like, I think it's very common. Almost nobody gets through childhood without being touched by trauma in some way. And yet I wonder, I was just wondering this maybe this morning, how many people deal with it in a healthy way and what does a healthy way even mean? But it's like, you know, I, you know, experienced like like tragic loss at close range, not with anybody in my immediate family, but friends and friends of friends, you know, it was around me and profoundly affected me. And yet I never really addressed it in a, I think things are changing now though. Is it? Like, yeah, I do. I do. I think things are more people with children more are now like, and how do you feel? And I talk about it in the book, but when my dad died and my mom, what did she know? She was 34. I mean, I went to therapy a couple of times and I said, I'm fine. And people, okay. <laughs> Can you imagine? I just can't imagine. Yeah. But she was doing the best she could. Yeah. But I, um, I never, yeah, I never, I found ways. They weren't healthy ways. I found, I almost died from an eating disorder. I found that way at one point, you know, I found, um, drinking too much, like you name it. I found other ways to not feel or to deny my grief and my depression, but never quote unquote healthy ways. So you were in high school and you became anorexic? Yeah. When I was 17, I went with my mother to get, she was getting implants removed or something and, and or breast reduction. And I said, I had huge boobs at the time. And I said, I want to get a breast reduction. Oh, I want one because I got so much attention and unwanted attention. And the doctor looked at me and said, you can't get a breast reduction, lose five pounds. And I was like, lose five pounds. You know, I just had never, that had never been a thought in my mind. So I went home and I made this list of what not to eat. And I lost five pounds and then 10 and then 20 and then 25. And I couldn't stop. And it was like something broke in me. I didn't get my cycle for four years. And I mean, the last, I ended up dropping out of NYU by accident. I was going to take a semester off. I so had one this, year. this trans, this went over through college. Oh yeah. I went, I had one year left of NYU and, um, I wanted to take a semester off because my mom moved out here to California and I wanted to feel safe. So I was like, I'm going to take a semester off and live with her. And but that whole last semester, I have no memory. I was so sick that i was like i was a walking dead person and do you know like do you have a way of languaging what the like i guess it's a it's a a search for control covering up that like what's the relationship between the anorexia and the grief i do i think i think it's absolutely control it's i was it's this and it's not true at all this like if i'm if i deny myself or i'm thin then i can deal with this and i and i won't 
um, I won't feel this. It's, it's, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's, if I can control this, I can't control anything else, but I can control this. Also for me, particularly with the thought that I was a bad person, it was punishing. I don't deserve to eat. I don't deserve to be a person in the world. That was a mantra I had all the time. I don't deserve to be a person in the world. Um, which stemmed from this mantra, which is, I call it a mind tattoo that I'm a bad person. So it was the control thing and it was the way to punish myself and deny myself mm. and a way to ultimately disappear. Yeah. That's a big thing too. I mean, uh -huh. it makes, it makes sense. You're just trying to shrink down into uh -huh. nothing. Yep. And I just constantly had to like feel my ribs and, and like, and if I didn't feel things sticking out, I would have a panic attack. Mm. My mom would cry and I just, but, and, but I was so addicted also to that identity. And so, and do you have any siblings? I do. I have a sister. She's the one who has a, um, oh, child that's with right. Prater yeah. Willie syndrome. Yeah. 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 And I have a sister who's five. She was five and I was eight when my father died. And so right before he died, they were going to get divorced. And apparently they had this argument and my sister overheard and my father said, I'll take Jennifer, you take Rachel. My sister heard that. So <sighs> it's colored everything. Sure. It's tricky. And and he said that because I think my mom, my mom said he didn't know and he just thought you were eight. It was easy. He would be easier and nothing to do with like. Plus like 50-50 split. You know? I, who knows? <laughs> I get it. Yeah. I would have given anything for her not to have heard that. Right. And it wouldn't have even happened that. You know, but, um, yeah. Okay. The, the stuff that wires us, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing is that we don't, as parents, necessarily have all the tools. And, I mean, who would? There's so much to, to manage and so much to know. You'd have to be quite a polymath to have it all nailed down. But to get through life and to get through childhood and be healthy is no small feat. Like, no. physically, psychologically, spiritually healthy. Like, it's a lot of work. There's always stuff coming at you. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's a never-ending process. You don't ever get there. It's it's just something you yeah. are constantly working on. But, obviously, you've been doing the work. Um, I want to get to you um, overcoming your eating disorder. So, you, you're, in, you're at NYU... You drop out. You move to California to be with your mom. Is that what you said? Yeah, and I got a summer job at the newsroom. At the newsroom in West Hollywood. Summer job the for almost on, fourteen on, years on Robertson. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So okay. That's how I know Patton. Hi, Patton. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're listening. Um, <laughs> um, that's how I know a lot of people. I worked there for almost fourteen years. My summer job. I mean, it's the biggest joke of the world. So um, I came for the summer, and I have not left yet. But yeah, I, um, but I, and I didn't really overcome it. I mean, the truest true is that I, I wasn't able to be as skinny any, anymore. So I didn't necessarily look like it, but I was still completely abusing myself until I went on antidepressants. And that wasn't until maybe 10 years ago. And that was what turned it. And that was what? What like turned it around for yes. you? Yes. I wish I'd gone on them way sooner. Yes. It was like, you know, like a, a flip switch switch flipped yeah. <laughs> a switch flipped in my brain um and and i don't believe that you you ever get over anything necessarily i mean there's a, whenever i'm really stressed out i feel kind of old programming start i don't do anything about it i don't you know starve myself or exercise for five hours a day anymore but those old you know uh thoughts or temptations 
but yes, antidepressants and doing the work I do now. Yeah. So what, what, like, so you took, you started on antidepressants. Did you do talk therapy too? No. I mean, I never stayed. I would go and then I, I just, you know, I quit. Um, I, no. Okay. But you got on the antidepressants and it leveled you out, made a, a significant difference in your... Significant. And I was doing a lot of yoga, but, but I will, I will be the first to say that yoga wasn't enough. I had depression since I was a child, severe, and it wasn't enough just to yoga and meditate it away. I had to go on meds. Okay. So when you're, um, talking about severe depression, going back to childhood and in terms of how it manifests, like the anorexia is tied to it, but is this like, can't get out of bed? Yes. Okay. I can't get out of bed. Um, wanted to die. Uh, also really, really bad anxiety. Yeah. And I used to have these terrible panic attacks and I used to pick my face. I mean, it was like just horrible attack my face. Um, yeah. When, not being able to get out of bed, just a f ultimate flatness. Um, but you could still go to work. Like you were, you able to get yourself to your job? Yeah, but I would. Oh my god, I would stay up all night and sleep till like noon or whatever. Um, yeah, and all I thought, all I was consumed with was how much of a garbage person I was and how fat I was, and I, I wasn't creating anything. I wasn't writing. I was writing maybe a couple poems here and there. I was saying that I was an actress, but not doing anything about it. Um, it kept me so immobilized. Also saying I hate my job and I hate doing this and never leaving a year after year passing. You Thir know? 13 years is a long time at one restaurant. Can you imagine, especially <laughs> in Los Angeles? And, yeah. and because in Los Angeles, people assume that it's a pit stop, you know, like, oh, you're an actress or so, so the, the pity that people and, and the disdain that people often looked at me with. Right. The status. Yeah. Now I just can't wait till they all see my book. <laughs> Kiss my ass. I mean, I'll never forget. Look, you're still here. I mean, can you imagine saying that to someone? Right. Well, I, I really bristle uh, at all of the, like, what was the thing? With, there's something on Twitter. Here was an, an example of where uh, the Twitter mob was right, but somebody was talking down uh, to somebody for working. Oh, no. It was when they- that, The Trader Joe's guy? The Trader Joe's guy. Dude. That that really Trader Joe's is the best job. Yeah, and that touched a nerve in me. I was like, "Fuck these people." The guy from the Cosby Show. Yeah. So what? He works at Trader Joe's. I uh, honestly, I I started following him. Yeah, just, yeah. But I was so upset by that. Yeah, me too. I yeah. think, and I think that it speaks to one of uh, America's many illnesses. You know, like the. You know, the way in which we conceive of success. Right. What do you do? What do you do? I hate that. I sometimes ask that question, mea culpa, like, in a, like if I'm at a party or something, and I always hate myself for totally. it. Ask something else. I know. Like I anything know. else. Sometimes it's nervousness. It's just like, oh, I don't know what to say, and, you, and it's just it's habitual. A, yeah, it's a filler. But it, it is. It's, it's a long time ago when I was feeling sorry for myself, about 10 years ago, I wrote a poem, and one of the lines in it was, get a job it was it was called how to make a life and it was steps and the one of the steps was get a job remember this job is not who you are and that for me i wish i could go back and tell myself of the waitressing years that 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 this does not define you yeah like what you do for a living and who you actually are are two separate things 
100%. And yet I say that as somebody who, as recently as last year, found myself to a degree that was uncomfortable for me, particularly in retrospect, subsumed. Like your identity can get subsumed by a job very easily. Yeah. Uh, especially if it's an in-house job where you're going to the same place every day and you're dealing with the social politics and office politics and personalities. And it's easy to get lost in it. I don't think if you would ask me when I was in the middle of it, if I was getting that, I, you know, are you getting lost in this? I don't think I would have said yes. But when it ended and I had like a couple of weeks to just like unwind a little bit and suddenly I was like sleeping like unusually deeply, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, I kind of came back to myself and I was like, wow. Yeah, and that happens in relationships. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's hard when you're in something to realize. But you're, yeah, your job is not who you are. And that's such an important message to me. And I never want anyone to think that I'm looking down on my serving years or a server. For me personally, I wanted to be creating art and I wasn't, I was like a dead person inside. So that's why I was so miserable, but it's an incredible profession and I bow down, you yeah, know? Yeah. I mean, like there's, there's nothing wrong with service profession, any profession, as long as it's not like, like, you know, you're working at the newsroom. There's lots of juice. And or, as I recall, it's no longer with us, is it? Did you news? say a lot of juice? There was juice. And, and remember there were <laughs> carrots? Juice. I was like, I mean, I'm one. There were a fair amount. So many you know, Jews in, in Beverly Hills. Right? Juices, yes. There's, and there's quite a number of them in my book. It's like, I can't remember anything in my life, but I remember the whole menu. You know, yeah. the grasshopper, yeah, the yeah. Ginger Rogers, you know. <laughs> I want, I've been in there many times. I wonder if you were there. I'm sure I wait on you because when I, the first time I ever met you, I was like, this dude is so familiar. <laughs> I mean, think about how many years I worked there, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, Five days a week. Yeah. Well, my wife, when we first started dating, lived over on, like, that way, and we could walk there. Oh, yeah, and sat on the patio, and, yeah. and I mean, I had to cut out some things in my book because of legal, but, like, back in the day, like, Lindsay Lohan yeah. and everyone, and, you know, and it was just the place to be. Yeah, right across from, uh, what's the restaurant where you get, like, a thing? The Ivy. The Ivy, right, right. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, it was, but I know so many people from those years. It's I great. I bet. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and what I, like to finish my thought, I was just going to say, there are jobs that you can do where you are um, creating something toxic. And that needs to be said too. It's like, it's like worth thinking about what you do. I'm not saying that like all jobs are good. Yeah. Like some jobs uh, are better than others in terms of their uh, outcome for everyone but you know everyone's got to make a living too right you know yeah i was like i think about uh like somebody who designs weapons or whatever exactly it's like you know you can say to that person you should quit your job you're making killing machines but you know what if that person quits their job someone else is just going to take it oh god you know so like what's yeah the we're going to go down a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. there yeah it's hard so it's like maybe like try to do it with more consciousness or it's a really tough quandary. I think about that. It a lot. is. It's a conundrum. Yeah. So, uh, you are waiting tables. You go on antidepressants. You start doing yoga. I start. I had been doing yoga, and I and I. My friend said you should become a yoga teacher, and I said you should shut the fuck up because that is so not what I ever want to do in my life. And here I am, a famous yoga teacher, <laughs> in quotes. And um, but anyway, so I then I went on the meds, and about a week later, I was like. 
maybe I will do a yoga teacher training. Yeah. And it, it, it was never because I wanted to be a yoga teacher. It was simply because I finally saw a possibility for an escape route. Because Brad, you see, I was like, you know, what was I in my early 30s? And in my head, I thought I was old. And so what was I going to do? And, uh, you know, all these ridiculous narratives I had, but I saw it as a possibility. So I became a yoga teacher and I became successful pretty quickly at teaching yoga. Where? Um, at first, I taught in Hollywood at Liberation Yoga. I've been teaching at Equinox for 10 years. That's the only place I teach anymore. I teach two hours a week, and I get a free membership. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I taught, I've taught everywhere. And Where did you do your teacher training? Um, with Annie Carpenter at Yoga Works, and then she moved over to this place called Exhale. But I used to do, how I made the money in the beginning was I used to do tons of yoga privates. Uh-huh. I don't do that anymore. And... Um, I would, I would make these little business cards with this picture of me on it, and I would hand it out when I was waiting tables, like with the bill. I was so determined. I, in a way, I'd never been with acting with anything in my life. All of a sudden, I was like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of here. And so I got a bunch of clients. I'm still friends with most of them. And yeah, and then I was able to leave the restaurant, and I... Start, and I got hired to do this yoga retreat for this, these life coaches. And I went there and I thought to Mexico, I think I can do this. And then I, since I never wanted to be a yoga teacher anyway, I started, I started writing essays again. And I started um, getting really creative with my stuff and combining the yoga with the other stuff. And then the yoga part started to fall away. Well, it makes sense, though, because um, like yoga in and of itself, nothing wrong with it. Very, you know, very good for you. But people going to yoga are working stuff out in a more explicit way, maybe than, or a more conscious way, maybe than people who are like working it out at the gym. I mean, I guess you, I don't know. I shouldn't be too overly simplistic, but I know. No, I think you're right. I think, and I think that it's the idea of being mindful, which is noticing, right? And there's you, you, you focus on your breath and on the alignment and. And it's easier, which is one of the reasons why a lot of times I don't do yoga because it's harder. And I don't mean necessarily physically. I just mean it's much easier for me to go on the elliptical and watch and watch I and watch Netflix. Right. I just check the frick out. (laughs) Where in yoga, it's like, oh no, you have to actually be in your body. Yeah. And and pay attention and pay it like and watch your mind go Mm -hmm. bananas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, But so I think it makes sense to me that in creating this um, workshop platform that you've created, that it would kind of bring all that stuff out yes and externalize it instead of people just sort of silently working it out on the mat well yes so (laughs) what so this is how i explain it now um when i was severely anorexic i used to eat in my sleep so instead of sleepwalking i would sleep eat that's a thing. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It was for me. And no, it is. A, I, a, but a, now it is. Like if you Google it, and I was so ashamed, and I would wake up and they'd be like muffin wrappers, and and the reason is because it was when my inhibitions were down. I was so starving that I would do that, and I've described it as like you know when I was at the height of anorexia, I would have to drink wine to eat. I've done it to have sex. Like it's this way to get. Um, let your inhibitions go. So my idea with what I do is to get people hot and sweaty and tired to get them to that space in a healthy way, you know, to get them more vulnerable so that they're in that same, you know, you know how when you've had a really long day and you're 
you feel emotional or tired. And I don't even mean crying. I just mean like your armor's off. So I use the body as a way to get them. And then I basically say, stop, drop, and write. And And I tie in my own stories and I give them a prompt and they write and we share out loud and combine it with also um, what I call dorking it out. So it's not like heavy, you know, like talk therapy, but we'll sing, I'll put on journey. And it's amazing to watch people, a hundred people will just start singing, not Hmm. giving a shit what they sound like or what the person next to them sounds like. And how did you come to this format? I mean, I know some of it was intuitive, but like out of my butthole, I made it up. (laughs) I'm saying like, I really just made it up and it just kept morphing. Okay. So, but the first one, you 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 go you go do this like you're teaching oh, yoga. Oh, Brad, you're making me spill the whole uh, book. But <laughs> but you're teaching at this life. These life coaches invite you to Mexico to teach yoga. You look at it and you say, "I think yeah, I, could, so, I, could, I could do something like this." And then all right, so what, I don't know how much time we have, but so my mother, God bless my mother, she was like, "You need to listen to Wayne Dyer and Susie Orman." And I was like, "Mom, no." But I finally started listening to Wayne Dyer, and I get off my shifts at the newsroom, and I would walk, I would do this speed walk, and I'd listen to Wayne over and over and over and over. So, cut to, I did the retreat in Mexico, and I thought I could do this. And at the time, I was teaching lots of yoga classes, so it was just a, a, my first retreat was a weekend called Yoga, Food, and Wine, and. It was in Ojai. And I got them there and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I said I had made a itinerary, even though I can't schedule anything. And <laughs> I, but you know, people wanted one so demanding. <laughs> and and uh, so I turned around to face Ojai Valley and I was like, we're going to meditate on. And all of a sudden I said, what well, we're manifesting. And I realized Wayne Dyer had been saying that. And I turned around and there's 27 people that first one who I had just like been hustling, newsroom people, uh, yoga students, uh, not hustling, but like getting to um, know me. And I said, I thought to myself, wait, I did manifest this. Just like six months ago, I was waitressing and so depressed and, huh. And so I started um, kind of reiterating Wayne Dyer's stuff and just a, just a tiny bit of writing. It was just with a little sticky note. And then... Um, once I started writing essays a lot and blogs and they started kind of going viral and people were responding, I started um, somehow getting some kind of confidence, which there's a danger in, right? And like the validation from others, but I'm grateful for it because I started getting confidence in bringing some of the stuff I was writing about into the workshop. What's well, got confidence in vulnerability. Yes. And, and just confidence in like, oh, because I was always afraid if, if this isn't yoga, how am I going to get people in the room or get them to stay or feel like I haven't betrayed them? And now I don't, I, no, I don't ever call what I do a yoga retreat. I'm going to France next week. I never say it's a yoga retreat. I have a yoga teacher coming. But I started just getting more confident with um, what I wanted to do and without it having a specific being able to fit in a box, you know, this, I made up a word called the just a box and that's just a mom, just a yoga teacher, just a waiter, just a stay at home dad, whatever it is. And I love when things don't fit in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And and I think that, uh, in terms of serving people, like people, I mean, I guess some people want to go on a yoga vacation. They just want to do yoga for sure. Stay. And I will gladly point them to someone who does that. Yeah. But I think a lot of people, and, and I guess you're proof of it, 
the idea of going away and doing something more holistic and connective and expressive is probably you hit that in the connective and expressive and you know and it's and it's hilarious and it's also deep you know the one i just did in um the fall in italy there were i have a scholarship fund for a woman who's lost a child there were five scholarship recipients and one of them was 13 because um the father had died by suicide two years ago and last june the woman's son was 17 died in a car crash oh my god so i brought her and her daughter so the little girl hi peyton lost her mom her dad and her brother and it was like so if you look at it on paper, you'd go, oh, my God, that's like, oh, no, that's way too much grief for me. You know, another woman lost two sons at the same time last Thanksgiving together. And yet it was the most joyous, silly, wine drinking, pizza eating, fun. And yes, deep grief filled all of it. But it was this, you know, rounded experience that is like life. And these women who had lost children were there with the greater population. It wasn't just... Yes, no, it's 100% never going to be... That's not, you know, it's it's sprinkled in. Okay, so, so but like the other women who were there, or is it all women or is it men too? Usually, the work, three-hour workshops aren't, you know, uh-huh. like if I do one in LA or something, but the week retreats usually, yeah. Okay, so I'm just curious, like the women who were there who uh, had not suffered the loss of a child... Like, what is their response? I guess it's the embrace, right? It's a great question, and it's amazing. So first of all, people know, people that sign up know that I do have these scholarship recipients, and there's a possibility there's going to be someone there that's experiencing deep grief. But it's such a gift because it gives us, the people who haven't experienced that tremendous loss, this opportunity to be there for somebody else. And to learn about grieving and to um, give the gift of our presence. And I mean, it's, it's really a gift for us. I always feel like I've been gifted something to be able to spend time with these people. Is everybody just weeping? Is there a lot of weeping? There's so much. La- no, that's the thing. I mean, there is, but there's also like we went skinny dipping in the pool we got wine tasting they they made a they did a flash mob to rick astley for me we have this like <laughs> we have um i don't want to spoil it because a lot of people will still come but we do a party on one night i mean it's just it's the most if it wasn't fun I, w- I would stop what i was doing it's the most fun wonderful experience wow so okay and it takes a lot of planning you have- a lot of planning yeah my mother Again, God bless my mother. Um, she helps me. And then I have an assistant now, Elizabeth Terry Conway. But it does take a lot of planning. And my mom, thank God, because I can't. We have, an, we have an, a Gmail. My mom handles everything. She does. Yeah. So I'm really good with the people part and the planning and the money. Nope. That's not you. Nope. Well, but it's good to know your strengths and weaknesses. What did you say? It's good to know your strengths and weaknesses. I am the biggest fan of that. I believe that I'm terrible at almost everything, and I'm amazing, like the best at a couple things. Which are the... Which are making people feel safe and listening. Yeah, those two things. Those two things. I feel incredibly safe right now. Just good. For those... I, I, you, do you feel held? <laughs> I do. I'm held in your loving presence right I'm, now. Yeah, I'm holding space <laughs> for you right now in my heart. And... With my eyes. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I'm this morning, right before I came to see you, 
I was heating up French fries from Wendy's, Brad, from Wendy's <laughs> that were for my son. And I was heating them up with some Trader Joe's Chicken McNuggets on the stove. And I immediately, 30 seconds later, forgot that I was cooking them. And they burned. And I thought, I can't even heat up French fries and Trader Joe's Chicken McNuggets, you know? <laughs> I mean, but I laughed at myself. Um, yeah, so I, there's a lot that I suck at. So you asked for help, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. You, and you know, like, yeah, you reach out. And I think like uh, I was reading that you were doing some of that with regard to your book. Like all the all the people that you've reached out to and helped over the years, like now you're having this publication success. I do love the idea of there being some kind of, uh, what's the word? Karma. Like, uh, you know, you, when you've reached out and helped a lot of people and then you're in a position where you might need a little bit of help, you had a, a community to turn to. Dude, I have a street team. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided I couldn't afford an outside publicist um, because I can. It wasn't like I decided uh, I can. <laughs> and so I posted on Facebook, who wants to be in my street team, which I don't even know what it meant. I just saw like someone did it. And like. 500 people email me. I have this 500 people street team on Facebook that are just dedicated to helping me with my book. And what do you have them doing? Oh, I mean, in the beginning, when it, when it, well, now that it's getting close, now I'm going to, you know, put them into action. But it started in October when the cover launched and they pre-ordered and they share it and they, and basically they spread the word, you know. So now as it's like just a couple of weeks away, I'll have them do more. But each Friday, it's a really beautiful community. Each Friday I have them post about what they need and what they want to share. And so they've all become friends and people share their links and their websites. And it's this beautiful place. What is that? How, how big of a social media community do you foster? Do you have like a big, huge... I have Instagram as my main gem. Um, and I have, I don't know, like four, maybe 44,000 people that follow me. Well, actually, I probably have like maybe 60 because I have three Instagrams, you know? So maybe like 60 on Instagram, 1,000. And then Facebook, maybe like 100,000 people on my fan page. I don't really do that Facebook so much anymore. And Twitter, I just, I don't know. I'm not very good at Twitter, and I don't know why. Hmm. I've never Instagram, gotten popular on Twitter. I don't, I, you know, I've never gotten You're popular. You're popular on Twitter. No, I'm, I tweet too much, but I'm not that popular. I don't know what it is. <laughs> like, I'll tweet something, and like... I'm like, mate, my Twitter's broken. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, well, why? I think you you find the one that you like yeah, the best. Yeah, so Instagram's my jam. And by the way, I think Instagram might be the most effective in terms of... Are you kidding? That's that's completely how I run my business. Yeah. When I ask people, how are you here? It's, it's either social media, Instagram, or word of mouth. Those two things. Well, I mean, word of mouth, thank God. But Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're, but you're right about that. The, the coming... My, I've lived my life... For for the last many years with this question of how may I serve as the driving force. And I have worked my ass off to support other people and help other people and really come from this place of like, there's enough. And it's come back to me with this book. I, I cannot even believe the people that want to help me just genuinely want to see me succeed. And it's, it's so refreshing. Yeah. That's great. Would you say? It's great. It's, it's the way, so great. It's the way it should work. Like when people really give of themselves and extend themselves in the, you know, in the direction of other people with the intention of helping and serving, when it comes around and you need a little help, it should be there. That's the way that it should work. I don't know if it always does work that way, but I'm glad it's working for you. It is. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone. And I hope that I can, you know, continue to be of service and we can't always help everyone. And that it's hard, but 
we do what we can do. Yeah, we can launch this book, right? We can what? We can launch this book. Just get the street team out. Activate, yeah. activate the street team. I mean, what should I? I mean, I, I know it's getting close. I'm like, oh, I have all these people. What do I have them do? March. Like, send them out into the streets. <laughs> That's actually, I should have them, like, hold signs up. But my, my publisher is just amazing. They made a trailer for the book. It was really sweet. I saw it. I saw with the people talking. Yeah. Like, yeah. I saw that. That was yeah. good. I yeah. didn't know if you did that or if your publisher did it. They did, that. did it. Yeah. I love I. I love, love, love my publisher. And Who's publishing? Dutton. You? Dutton, right. Dutton. Maya Zeev is my editor, and she did um, Bad Feminist, Roxanne Gay's book, and it's just incredible. It's been an incredible process. And I I was on a panel last month, I think, in Brooklyn at Books Are Magic with Michelle Philgate, who she is, and Mira Jacob, and um, a few other people, and... Michelle asked a question about like, what would you change about publishing? And one of the things I said is I would make things less secret. Do you know, I would, I didn't know what I was doing. I know nothing. And just, you know, share more about, so if I can with other people, I'm gladly going to share my experience and what I know and what I can offer. Yeah. No, like, especially like that, that first book or outside looking in, it's like, how does this all work? How does this happen? Who's making these decisions? I still, I'm constantly texting Lydia Yuknovich. I mean, I, what does this mean? What do I do? Can you look at this? Thank God. And Emily Rapplack. If I didn't have them, I would not have this. Yeah. And they know they're great guides. They've been through the ringer. Oh, yeah. They, they yes. Yes, 100%. And, and Lydia. And you lead workshops with Lydia. With both of them. With well, both Emily of them. and I used to do a, uh, one in Vermont. And then children got in the way but we want to do another one together we're just trying to figure out where and by the way lydia and emily have both uh, been on this program and they both love you and send their love and and um yeah they're both excited so um and lydia lydia is a great story it's um, a good story about how we make up stories about people i read her book chronology of water and it wrecked me i was off my meds and i just was <laughs> weeping on an airplane you know and i had sent her this message I sent her two messages on Facebook, and they both said seen, but she didn't write me back. So I was like, whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so anyway, one night I was having some wine, and I, signed, I saw on Twitter a course she was teaching with Susie Vitello, and I signed up for it. It was 2014. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I never do stuff for myself. Click by. And about a week before I went, I broke my foot. But I went anyway. I was like, broken foot. I went in a wheelchair. And I met Lydia, and um, I was convinced she didn't like me because she didn't write back to my message. And, and at the workshop, she, she's actually tremendously shy. But when you read her book, you know, she's a lot larger than life. So I was confused. So I left, and I was like, I, she hates me, but I don't care. She's just a genius. And then a couple months later, or whatever the time frame was, she sent me a message and said, I think you're one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Do you want to work together? Do you want to do something together? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Yes, and that was that. And that was that. And we just started doing this writing in the body workshop, and it's taken off. And it's damn. How many workshops a year do you do? I want to say like twenty, but that's probably too many. But between the retreats, you know, I do like week long retreats, weekend retreats, and then three hour workshops. I do a lot. And I have to not do as much because I have a son and it's really hard leaving him. And also it's really exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want to spread your, especially in this kind of role where you're, you're up in front of people and you're trying to give and listen. I, if you spread yourself too thin, then you're not going to be able to, to, to do No, the, the and, and 
So one of my big goals in life is to figure out a way to have more passive income or to my goal with this book is to I want to do more public speaking to be able to get paid to do that. That way I can still do the retreats, just not as many, but I don't have to completely rely on getting on an airplane and doing this hard listening work for all of my income. Right. Yeah. So the, the speaking is a lot different because I don't have to do as much as the um, engaging. Right. You know? Right. Well, no. And if you get, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how many people do it, but uh, there are some who you can get a pretty good speaking fee. Totally. And, and, and it's like in and out. So that's, I would like to do that and then not, and I, and I really like to do a lot of, um, giving back, you know, a lot of work with young girls and stuff that I don't want to have to charge for and the scholarship stuff. And in order to do that, I have to be making more money so that I can right. feed my child and myself and, right. you know, so do you, like a lot of what you're doing is therapeutic, therapeutic, but you don't have a, like a, you're not like a therapy, no. like a license. You, you, in- but I don't like it's, it's, I'm never trying to fix anyone. I really, I just listen and people just listen and we laugh, but I don't, um, no, I'm not, it's not therapy. And I make that very clear. It's not therapy. It's listening. It's storytelling. It's sharing. But it can be therapeutic nonetheless. Yeah. But so can, um, you know, riding your bike or watching Netflix or right. doing this, you know, or, um, 100% can be therapeutic. It is. I hope it is. So where do you do, like, what kind of venues? Like, if you go to France, where do you where do you go? Um, running a chateau in Bergerac. I did one there last year, and it's just phenomenal. And in Italy, I've done 10 in Italy. Um, it's in Siena, this beautiful place called Locando Cugnanella. Um, I've done them all over, but now Italy and France are just my jam. Bali, I've done Galapagos. And when I do it with Lydia and I, we do it at her. She has a writing space called Corporeal Writing. Um, and when I do it here in, or when I do it in cities, uh, three-hour workshops, I do them at yoga studios. Like in the studio? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, so it's 50 to 75 to 100 people. I don't like it too big because I, I really want everyone to, I want it to feel intimate. And people dance and stuff? You yeah, said- it's not. Yeah, but it's not like, I mean, sometimes I'll be like, dork it out. And we'll, you know, when we sing Don't Stop Believing, we'll start dancing. But it's not, you know, like, grab a partner. <laughs> do si do um, But it's so cool because most, a lot of people, I won't say most, really are so controlled by what other people think of them. And it's just the most liberating thing to let go of that. Yeah. And so then you said skinny dipping too. So people just get nude and just go jumping. It's- it's incredible. So I'll, I'll put on Journey, let's say, because that's one of the sign of people who are crazy for the most. Don't stop believing. And, um, you know, I'll say, okay, chair pose, and then sing. And everybody just, maybe there'll be one person that won't, and then in like 30 seconds they do. The whole room. The whole room. I'm telling you, I said I'm bad at everything. There's a couple things I'm good at. It's like magic and it's not a fluke because i've done this in like cities around the world for a really long time and people respond yes even people who are like inhibited e- even what they're like inhibited like yes. somebody because like every- somebody like me i'm thinking like i'm not dancing to don't stop believing i'm not doing it i'm no, not gonna yeah, skinny dip yeah. <laughs> um but why i just inhib inhibition but you would, I mean, you would, then in your way, you'd finally probably be like, no, don't stop. You know, <laughs> let's just sing together. <laughs> you guys can't see this, but we're dancing right now. Um, 
you know, and look, every once in a while, there is someone, I call it the one in the 100. If there's a room of 100 people and everyone loves you except one, who do you focus on? The one who doesn't yeah. love you, yeah. Every once in a while, there's the one. And I've gotten better at not focusing on them. I still give them a little bit of attention, but I don't let it shut me down. Like, it's just like they're just looking at you like... Yeah. Yeah. Or they'll walk out. Oh, you know? that person. But I really, like, I really... But I also don't do it in the very beginning. I, I ease them into it. So we have this whole dialogue, and we've gotten really comfortable with each other, and then... And, and I really drive home this idea of dorking it out. Just so people feel like they're at liberty. Yes. And what's really funny is, so... I mentioned my friend Nathan, who I'm getting the tattoo with in, I don't remember what month it was. A couple of months ago, they were opening for Ed Sheeran in Pasadena. And I had never seen Ed perform. And I didn't, I wasn't a fan. I just didn't know his music. Now I'm a diehard fan. But anyway, he basically did the same thing. He had thousands of people in the audience. And he said, sing out loud. And I want you to sing as terrible as terribly as you can. And essentially, he was telling the audience to dork it out. And my friends were like, Jen, that's what you do. And it's just like giving people this permission to be ridiculous. Um, and it's incredible. Yeah. And people love it. They love it. They do, love it. Do you think they take it with them? Is it something you can do outside of that space? Or do you have to be like in the safe? I, I would hope. I mean, I try to do every day. I mean, I, I, I try to you know, my son calls me silly mommy. I mean, someone's personality isn't going to change. You know, like you're, you say, you know, you're reserved or in, inhibited or whatever. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to like, you know, be this completely different personality. But my goal is to help us be, feel more free. That's it. I'm not trying to change anyone or just feel more free. Right. And I say for my workshop, all you need is two things to listen and to tell the truth. And then one more, which is don't be an asshole. But yeah, those are good. Those are good uh, rules of thumb, right? Yeah, but you said that's a rule of thumb. I said those are good rules of thumb. I, yeah, but but you would think because especially if it's in a yoga studio, people have the idea or or the writing. They think you either have to be a really good writer or a good yogi, and not at all. You just need two things: listen and tell the truth. And this book that you uh, are publishing is connected to the workshop work that you do. I'm imagining, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, the material was sort of refined over the course of doing workshops, like in terms of just how you think and talk about things, not necessarily in a one-for-one way, but I got to believe they're related. Yeah. Well, you know, I sold the book on proposal and then was like, oh, shit, now I got to write a book. I have no (laughs) idea what the structure is. And I panicked and Eva helped me a lot. Um, Eva Hagberg. Eva Hagberg, yeah. And we have the same agent. And um, I... I didn't want it to be about the workshops, you know, because I was so terrified of being self- considered self-help. Now I don't give a shit. Call me whatever you want. Just buy the book. I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. I mean, whatever. <laughs> um, but I didn't want it to be about the workshops. But yes, over in the workshops, I tell the stories. And so my publishers really wanted it to be, and it ended up working. And it, I can't imagine it any other way. But the workshop is threaded through it. So I think it was Publishers Weekly. One review that came in said something like, it's it's like taking her workshop, but on the, on the page, but weaved in with my story. So it is like the workshop, but it's a memoir. It's definitely not like a... Like a how-to. No, no, except how to not be an asshole. Okay. And you wrote it. Did you have to like, with all the other things that you have going on, motherhood, the workshops... 
suddenly you've got to write this book. So what was your, what was your schedule like? How did you get it done? Oh, it was crazy. Well, you know, a lot of it was written. I had been, you know, quote unquote, saying I'm writing a book for a really long time. And so actually when I, when I went to write it, I did have a lot of it already, um, already on the computer. A lot of it was excavating and just sort of figuring like a puzzle, how to put it together. But it was, it was tricky because, you know, we live in a tiny apartment and childcare. I had a one and a half and a two year old. Oh, I mean, one child, but he was one and a half and then two. Yeah. And then my father-in-law got pancreatic cancer and died and Ugh. all this stuff happened. Um, so it was really, really hard. And I thought I'm not going to be able to do this, but I signed a contract, so I have no choice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, I basically used my advance money and paid for babysitters and I went to Portland like twice and stayed in a hotel, just locked myself in there. But surprisingly, a lot of it I had written because I've been writing for so long. Uh, just the hardest part for me was was a the proposal and b just figuring out how to put it together. Right. You know. Right. And now here you are. And now here I am with this book, which I'm really—it's surreal, and I'm really proud of it. And. It's exciting. Excited and nervous and all the things. Yeah. And you're getting ready to go overseas for a workshop. I'm catching you just so people know, because this is probably going to air right around when the book rolls out. But June 4th is when the book comes out. Yeah. yeah. So this episode will probably go live around then. I will have been in France. Yeah. So I'm catching <laughs> Jen like as she's like pre-publication date, getting ready to go to France to lead a workshop. Then you come back. There's going to be a lot of events for the book. Yeah. Um, and then um, I imagine you probably have more workshops later this year. Non, I mean, if I tell you right now, you'll like roll back and faint. But yeah, a are lot. They, are they fully booked or can people sign up? No, they're not fully booked. Um, and some of them I haven't even like, – like another one, Lydia Jokinovich and I are doing with another um, woman named Alicia Easter. That's not even up on for registration yet, but – um, no, people can sign up and I have an event that I, in the center for fiction, June 10th in Brooklyn with actress, Laura Donnelly, who is nominated for a Tony award the night before. So wouldn't that be fun if she won it? And, <laughs> and she just got the lead in Joss Whedon's new show called the nevers on HBO. So we're going to do a fun little in conversation June 10th. For all you Outlander fans, she was on Outlander. Did you meet her at the newsroom or? No, she was a private Google. <laughs> oh, she was. Okay. That's how I, the Snow Patrol, I mean, like, like so many people in my life are either Google. I used to have this, my mom, again, made me this terrible website, but when you typed in private yoga instructor, I was the first person that came up. So I got so much business from my mom ah. and, um, she like taught herself how to do it. And so that's how I found Look at your mom knowing how to do like Google AdWords or whatever. No, she's just, just, she's just this hilarious person. Just she's, such a character. And, you a, know? and a master of uh, search engine optimization. She got, wait, what? I said, and a master of search engine optimization. Seriously. <laughs> so, um, and then let's see, I have um, an Italy retreat in September 21 to 28. So if people want to come. And I have workshops in New York City and Princeton and Massachusetts. And Well, where can they find you? Where do they like? JenniferPastelop.com. Okay. And Instagram, Jen Pasteloff. 
Okay. Well, I am thrilled for you. Um, congratulations. And uh, I hope you, you know, amid all of the uh, travel and loss of sleep and everything that comes with doing a book tour and events and all that you have going on, I hope you find moments to enjoy it. I am. And I do. And I appreciate that. And I, I really will heed that advice. And I will. Okay. I'll try to be less inhibited. How about that? I would really appreciate that. That would mean a lot to me, personally. Your right. inhibition's really just slowing me down on life. <laughs> well, it's great to see you. Congratulations Thank again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is Jennifer Pasteloff. Her book is called On Being Human, a memoir of waking up, living real, and listening hard, available from Dutton, with a foreword by Lydia Yuknovich. You can find Jennifer Pasteloff on the internet at jenniferpasteloff.com. She is on Instagram. Her uh, super popular Instagram feed is at Jen Pasteloff. Her Twitter feed is at Jen Pasteloff. Check it out. One more time, the book is On Being Human. It's a memoir. Go get it right now. Help the cause. It's a good cause. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thank you to Tiger and My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you're interested in uh, transcribing, hit me up. If you want to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the uh, Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it. It's a good app. It's free. Next week on the program, Catherine Scanlon. Oh, my God.